You're listening to Joel Johnson's Money Wisdom. Joel is a certified financial planner and the CEO of Johnson Brunetti. Joel, let's open up the mailbag and see what folks have for you this week. We'll start with Kenneth, who said, I'd always assumed that I'd send my kids to an in-state college, but my daughter is very interested in a private school that costs six times as much. Can I really justify that kind of expense for a college education? I'm skeptical that her education would really be six times better there. Well, I'm interested in your perspective on this, Joel, as you have a kid at UConn now. You also have one at High Point in North Carolina, which is quite a bit more expensive. So you've seen both ends of it. What's your take? Yeah, I mean, we've had kids go to two private schools and two, uh, two, you know, kind of the flagship state universities, Colorado and UConn. And then, um, and then we've had uh, High Point, um, which is my son's going to business for, private school down in North Carolina, and Gordon College, very small school up on the north shore of uh, Boston there. Um, or I guess a little bit around the corner on the way out to Gloucester. Uh, but, I, you know, I don't know how to answer this question. I mean, I, you know, if I was going to medical school and I could get into Harvard or, you know, law school and I could get into Harvard, maybe, maybe that's, you know, a really big deal. If I'm going for, I, I don't know, I, I don't want to get in trouble answering this question. I, I guess that's what I'm trying to say because I think this is a deeply personal decision. You know, I'm so glad my son's at UConn, not because of the cost, but it was the perfect school for him. U- UConn was just absolutely the perfect school for him. My son Michael ended up at University of Colorado Boulder, but that's because the military gave him a full ride, and and um, and that's where they wanted him to go. And so, it just really depends. There's so many factors here. I, I will say, I-, I have a friend of mine that um, one of his kids went to, I think, University of Miami, Ohio. And the other one went to, I believe it was University of Connecticut uh, or maybe even UMass Lowell. And I remember him saying to me, I'm not so sure one, the one that went to the private school got a better education. So I, I don't know how to answer this, Kenneth. Um, so I apologize for my lack of expertise because I think it gets into more of a personal question. Uh, I would question whether you're going to get six times as much value out of a school. But then again, you know, you only get to go to college once and so uh, – you know, maybe it's maybe it's better enough that you would spend that kind of money. And of course, if money isn't an issue, then it's probably what school fits the child the best. You know, I had an interesting conversation with somebody about a similar topic recently. They'd sent their kid to Georgetown, which is you know sixty thousand dollars a year. Yeah, great, great school. And her perspective was when we sent him there, we were skeptical that it was worth 60000 a year. And she said, in the classroom, no, it's not six times better than a place that costs 10000 a year. She said, but the difference is, at Georgetown, my kid went to school with prime minister's children uh, from different countries and the children of billionaires. And she said, these are all kids that he's still friends with to this day. So from an Black and white education perspective, no, not six times better. But from a networking perspective and just having you know those kind of connections for the rest of his life, absolutely worth it. So that was an interesting perspective on that I'd never thought of. I still don't know if it's worth that kind of money necessarily. Well, you know what? You know, now that you mention that, I, I probably would, would tend to agree with that because I know for a fact, and I think there was even a Harvard Business School study on this, if I'm not mistaken, that the biggest factor in somebody being successful is the people that they know, the, the people that are their reference group. And if that's the case, then certainly, you know, if you can get into a school 
where you have you know kids that are centers of influences or their families are center of influences and or it gives you the ability to get that job interview that maybe you couldn't get uh, because of a connection or even because there's a certain um, institution's name on your diploma I think I think that's a big deal so that is probably much more valuable um, and again I'm, I'm just thinking I'm gonna get myself in trouble here with some of our professor clients but um, there's just so many different pieces to this to this question bottom line is whatever the education plan is for your kids that needs to be woven into your overall financial plan whatever place you're going to send them let's be sure we know how that's being paid for and how that affects your overall retirement planning picture so good question Kenneth good discussion this comes to us from grace who says this is a second marriage for both me and my husband we file a joint tax return, but we keep all of our other financial matters separate. Is that okay, or should we be doing things differently? Well, I'm not sure what the question, is that okay, means, Grace. Is that That's perfectly legal for you to keep your finances separate and file a joint tax return. Uh, you're just filing a tax return as a couple. That doesn't mean your money has to be all grouped or merged together. Um, so that's you know, completely up to you, but there's nothing wrong at all with keeping separate checkbooks, separate stock brokerage accounts, obviously separate retirement accounts. You can't merge those together and filing a joint tax return. So nothing at all wrong with that, Grace. And we see this a lot. We see couples getting married later in life, or maybe it's a second or third marriage and they don't ever blend their money together. We see other couples, same scenario, second or third marriage, getting married later in life and they do blend their money together. Sometimes the kids have a little bit to say about this too. So it's a little bit of a dicey issue to walk through. We help our clients walk through that, but there's no right or wrong here, certainly with blending or not blending the money together. And you certainly can file a joint tax return. What about from a retirement planning perspective? Should it be he has his retirement plan and she has hers? Or should they be on the same page with how that works? Well, again, I, I don't think I don't think there's a right or wrong here, but to plan for retirement and completely ignore the fact that there is another person in the marriage that has money would be, I think that would be foolish for a financial advisor to do that. But many times we do actually do that. We, we create two separate financial plans to see if each person could be independent without the other. But then we might create a third that blends them together um, because that's usually the wish of someone. The, the big fear is that in a second marriage, especially one that happens later in life, that somebody's going to disinherit their kids. And there are a lot of ways to make sure that does not happen while at the same time taking care of each other financially. All right. How about David, who says, is there a better solution for saving for college other than just piling money into a 529 plan? Well, good question, David. A 529 plan is my favorite way of saving for college. Uh, just to review for the folks that don't know, a 529 plan that allows you to contribute money into a plan and you can buy mutual funds inside the 529 plan. As they grow, the growth is tax deferred. And if you spend the money on education, on qualified education costs, then all the growth is tax-free, not just tax-deferred, but tax-free. So if I put $10,000 into a 529 plan, I leave it alone for 20 years, it grows at 7%, that's gonna become about $40,000. I started with 10, uh, now it's worth 40. I paid nothing as it grew, and when I take it out, as long as it's spent for qualified educational expenses, I don't have to pay any taxes on the profit. So it's one of my favorite ways to save for college. The other thing that I like about it is 
if the child that you design the 529 plan for ends up not going to college, you can just simply change the beneficiary and have somebody else take advantage of that money that's saved. You can also actually take the money back for yourself. Now, then you have to pay taxes on the growth. You lose that tax-free growth. But still, I mean, at least you have control of the money while it's growing. You can choose the beneficiary. And if you have to take it back, you take it back. Michael says, my wife is significantly younger than me, and I'm guessing she'll outlive me by at least 10 years. Do I need life insurance on myself to be sure she's okay after I'm gone? That's a great question, Michael. What you need to do to figure out the answer to that question is to do an income analysis and find out, well, what would happen if you have, you know, if you're working and you have current income and your income stops or even in retirement, uh, if you die before she does, which sounds very likely that you will, um, what happens to the income picture? You will lose one of the social security checks. You might lose part of a pension. Um, If you're a teacher, you might lose all of the pension. She might lose all of the pension. Uh, coming in. So you really need to do an analysis to find out what's the drop in the income when you die and how much life insurance does it take to replace that. Now, you might find out you don't need any life insurance. Um, the other thing is I would ask you if you were sitting here in front of me would would be, do you already have insurance? I already have insurance that's quite old and I just stopped paying premiums on it. It'll last for the rest of my life, but I just want it in place so that um, if I die, Wendy will have extra cash. Do we need the life insurance? Because that's the question you ask. Do I need the life insurance? We don't need the life insurance. We're, you know, we've been very blessed and she could get by on our savings easily if something happened to me. But I just like the idea of keeping the life insurance. Maybe I'll gift it to a grandchild at some point. So there's a big difference between do you need it and do you want it? But in your case, to do the analysis to find out if you need it to protect your wife, who again, you said is younger than you, you need to figure out what's the drop in income when you die first. Interesting analysis you need to do there, Michael. Interesting question. Be sure you have a plan to be sure everybody's taken care of. No matter who goes first, let's make sure the remaining spouse is in good shape financially. Maggie says, I had kids later in life than most people, so I'm almost 60 and my twin boys will be heading to college in a few months. I really want them to be able to finish college without any huge student loans, but I'm not sure that I can pay for both of them to get through school without hurting myself financially. I'd like to retire eventually, after all. Which thing should I place a higher priority on, their education or my retirement? Well, Maggie, as much as you might not want to hear this, it's always your retirement. Your retirement needs to be the highest priority. Believe me, if you sacrifice all your retirement money on their education, you're going to end up living with your well-educated kids, and neither one of you wants that. I know you might love them now, but you want your own freedom. So uh, they will be okay if you don't pay for 100% of their education. Again, a lot of people don't like to hear that answer, but I think it's the truth, and my job is to tell you the honest truth. Um, Now, the other thing is get an analysis done. Maybe you have enough money uh, to do both, and we'll be glad to do that analysis. We call it a retirement income analysis where we do an analysis to make sure you have as much that you need to to last for the rest of your life to create those monthly paychecks that come in just like a pension. And then if you have extra money left over, how much is it and can you afford to spend it on that education or for other folks on whatever they want? How about Steve, who says, I'm thinking about having my mom sign her house over to me so that she won't have to sell it if she goes into the nursing home and runs out of money. Is this a smart move? Well, it it may or may not be, Steve. If you have uh, siblings and she wants to leave the house to multiple people, it may be 
not the best way to do it. It would probably be better to set up a trust and have her make a gift into the trust. She can make a gift into the trust and retain the right to live in the house. And there are some rules that makes it uh, protectable against nursing home. There's a, there's a five-year look back and things like that. We're not really getting into that right now. Um, but the bottom line is she could sign the house directly over to you and you could allow her to live in it. If a certain amount of time passes by, it will be protected from the nursing home. But she could set up a trust also, um, which may be the cleaner thing to do. And especially if you have uh, other siblings, Steve, it makes a sense, at least makes sense to, to speak with an attorney that specializes in Medicaid planning for these types of issues. Harriet says, my brother tells me that I have way too much money in the bank. And he's probably right. It's about $150,000 right now. But I just like knowing that it's there in case I have an emergency. Is that really so bad? Well, this is a great question because here's a thing where you you need to tell your brother, first of all, in a very nice way, of course, Harriet, but you need to tell your brother, you know, it's my money, it's not your money. Now, he might be coming from a real good uh, heart in telling you that, but I will tell you, my dad always has a couple hundred thousand dollars in cash in his checking account. That's just what it makes him feel secure. And so it's not so much, uh, Harriet, about what is right on paper, you know, analytically, what should everybody do? Sometimes it's just about you feeling secure. Now, if $150,000 is all you have and it's all sitting in the bank, you're probably not going to keep up with inflation in the long run. In fact, you almost certainly are not. And so you should invest some of that money. But if you have, let's say, 500000 or a million dollars um, in long-term investments and you want to have $150,000 at the bank, I'm not going to tell you you shouldn't. I wouldn't. I would have that money invested somewhere. But don't let anybody tell you that you shouldn't have some cash available at any time. And you need to decide how much is right for you. That is a very contrary answer, by the way to what most financial advisors would tell you. Most financial advisors will tell you, hey, have three to six months in cash and invest the rest of the money. But if you investing the rest of that money is gonna cause you to lose sleep at night or is gonna make you nervous and you're okay with the rest of your, you know, you've done an analysis with an advisor and you've figured out, okay, you're okay with all your investments, um, you're gonna be okay as far as income goes for the rest of your life, then I don't have any problem with you having $150,000 in the bank. It's your money, Harriet. All right, how about a question from Bethany? Bethany says, I read recently about a family that had set up a complicated set of trusts to make sure that everybody in that family is essentially guaranteed to be a millionaire from this point forward. Our family certainly doesn't have that kind of wealth, but we're interested in creating some generational wealth. What's the best way for us to do it? Well, I'll tell you what Wendy and I have done. We've been very blessed financially. And what we've done is we've set up an arrangement um, that says that when we pass away, or even before that, we've already funded some of these trusts, there's money set aside for the benefit of our kids and our grandkids. And so our kids don't control that money. When Wendy and I pass away, there are certain rules that are in effect where they can benefit from some income, but they don't control that money. And that's really what a lot of wealthy families do. So because what do you want really? How do you use money? You use money to take the income and spend it, right? So we've set it up so that our kids never get the control of the lump sum. They just have the income. They can enjoy the income. And then when they pass away, our grandkids can enjoy the income. And it might even even go down to the next generation. But again, they're able to spend the income from those investments, but because the money is in a trust, they don't control it. And that's basically the concept. I'm being real simple here, but that's basically the concept of creating generational wealth. 
The other thing is you can attach strings, I like to say, to the money. For instance, you can say that if one of your kids is unemployed, they don't get to take the income off of that because you don't want to create an incentive so that they don't have to go to work. You don't want to create incentive for them to be lazy. That may be what you care about. You may not care about that, but you can think of the things that you're worried about, that you're concerned with, and then build those rules into the trust planning. So great question. Wonderful to be thinking about, Bethany. Um, a lot of families face this, especially here in the Northeast where our incomes are higher and our assets are typically higher than the rest of the country. This estate planning piece, this controlling your assets so they reflect your values is very important. That's why many of our clients care about it, and we have conversations about this particular subject all the time. Jared says, I'm about to get married. We're both in our 50s. It'll be my second marriage and her third. I'd like to keep all of our assets separate so that we each have our own financial lives and don't have to fight about money. But how do we plan for retirement if we don't really know what our total numbers look like? Well, Jared, this is simple. First of all, you can plan separately as if you weren't married. So your money is to fund your retirement. Her money is to fund her retirement. And many people feel comfortable like that, especially if it's a second marriage or a, or a third marriage in her case, because then you're not mixing up money in a very late stage of life and you don't have to feel a little insecure about what the other person's going to do. So um, typically, if people don't want to mix up the checkbook, they're going to plan separately for their retirement. Um, the other option is you just assume that um, even though you don't want to blend your checkbook together, uh, you assume that you're going to share expenses in retirement and we look at the whole picture. So that's entirely up to you. For many couples, we do it both ways. We assume that you're each going to fund your own retirement and then we look at the picture as if you were blending your assets. It just gives you a better picture going forward of the possibilities. Obviously, anything you decide today, you can change in the future. Meredith says, we've never lived on a budget our entire lives and my husband is very resistant to having a budget once we retire, but without a budget, how do we make sure that we don't run out of money 10 years before we die? Well, great question, Meredith. The way you make sure that you're not going to run out of money is that you make sure you have a retirement income plan. And in that retirement income plan, you know exactly how much money you need to set aside to cover all your income needs. So let's say you have $2 million and we do a retirement income plan for you and we find out, hey, if you set aside a million, five hundred thousand, one and a half million in this investment strategy over here, that's designed to provide you income for the rest of your life, and maybe if we can get a guarantee on all or a part of that income, then you have a half a million dollars that you know you can spend. You can spend it on a monthly basis, you can spend chunks at a time, you can save some and not spend some this year, but spend more the next year, but you know that on the one side, that million and a half guarantees all your retirement income needs. So that's how I would approach it. Um, make sure you have enough money set aside with a good financial plan where you know, Meredith, you never have to worry about running out of money. If there's extra left over, great. Then you can satisfy your husband's resistance to have a budget. Now, I will make a confession here as a financial planner. I hate budgets. I don't like budgets. I feel like they constrain me. I'm 56 years old. Even when I was in my 30s, I didn't like budgets. But I understand the need to save money and to have a plan. So what Wendy and I always did was we set aside a certain amount of our income right off the top and just saved it. And if there was extra money left over at the end of the month, we could spend that. If there wasn't any extra left at the end of the month, then we didn't have any to spend. So you know whether it's a budget or whether it's a forced saving program or you have an income plan set up where there's some sacred money that you won't touch, you need to have some kind of a system in place where you don't overspend and like you said, Meredith, run out of money 10 years 
before you die. Uh, last one for you today, Joel, comes from Lisa. He says, I'm retired and my husband needs to retire because he's a roofer and his body can't take it anymore, but he just refuses to walk away. I don't know if it's some kind of notion that he has to provide for me or what, but I'm sure we have enough money saved to be fine, but I can't seem to convince him of that. Any suggestions? Well, selfishly, I would say, come on in, visit with us. I mean, you need a financial plan. Uh, That's what we do. And we're not the only firm that will do a good job for you. So, you know, I I say that a little tongue in cheek, but come in to sit with us or somebody else that you feel comfortable with, they feel understands you. And put a financial plan together. You know, if if your husband refuses to do that, you can still come in and bring in the information that you want to talk about. And we can do a financial plan and you'll know and you'll be able to show him, even if he doesn't want to come in, that you're going to be okay. I can't convince him not to work, um, but I can certainly give him uh, in a piece of paper or a or a you know, something that shows him the evidence that you are going to be okay if he stops working. The other part's up to you to convince him. But you've got to have some data to back that up. And typically from somebody other than you, if you can show evidence that you're going to be okay, then that may help you persuade him uh, to stop working. Now, the other thing is he might not want to stop working. And so it might be just a, a matter of, you know, that that's a different issue. But let's find out if you're in a good spot financially where he could stop working if he wanted to. Yeah, I wonder in situations like that, how much of it is maybe someone has convinced themselves that they want to work, but the reality is in the back of their mind, they just don't have confidence that they can retire. And then suddenly, if they see a plan that shows why and how they can retire, well, now suddenly, uh, maybe they don't want to work as much. Maybe it wasn't actually a desire to work. It was just that's, that's what they'd convince themselves of. Yeah, there's a lot of psychology that goes on behind the scenes. I mean, sometimes somebody stops working and they, they really lose a big chunk of their purpose in life. And it, it um, you know, it can cause a lot of emotional issues, whether uh, we like to admit it or not. So there's a lot going on many times behind the scenes. But if you can have the evidence that says, look, clearly you can stop working if you want to, that's, that's a first step at least to start a discussion. Well, Joel, if somebody would like to get that confidence for themselves explain to us how your process works and and explain what they walk away with when they come in for their money map retirement review. What's the end goal there? Our goal is very simple. We want to give you more confidence in what lies ahead. We want to do everything we can to remove the fear from your financial future. That's our goal. Uh, We might not be able to do that for you, but that is our goal. And the first step is to pick up the phone, to give us a call, to set a time to come on in. The money map retirement plan That is our unique process. It makes things so simple. Uh, You have a one-page map that shows your entire financial life. It's a great starting place for us to have a discussion with you or with you and your spouse. Uh, From there, we can go to any kind of recommendations that you might want or an income analysis or an investment analysis to make sure that investment is serving the financial plan we put together for you. But the start is picking up the phone, getting your one-page money map. If that's all you want from us, that's perfectly all right. Uh, We've been blessed as a firm. We don't need to pressure anybody. But get your money map. Give us a call. It'll cover a lot of the questions that have been answered on this program that maybe you can relate to. 1-800-705-1232. Give us a call. Set up a time to get your money map. You can also text that number. Make sure you leave your first and last name when you text it. 1-800-705-1232. 
1232. Call or text, whichever you prefer, as Joel said. Just be sure to include your first and last name. Either way, 800-705-1232 to come in for your own complimentary Money Map Retirement Review. This is Joel Johnson's Money Wisdom. We'll talk with you next week. Same time, same place. Have a great day. Money Wisdom is sponsored by Johnson Brunetti. Investment advisory services offered through JB Capital LLC, a registered investment advisor. Insurance products offered through JN Financial LLC. Johnson Brunetti is a paid sponsor of the Yukon Huskies athletic program. Better Money is sponsored by Johnson Brunetti. 401k money left with your past employers could be at risk of earning less and costing you more in fees. So if you've recently left a job, turned 59 and a half, or if you've retired, the time is now to take action and protect your retirement savings. It's important to your financial future to take control of money that is rightfully yours. The Money Map Retirement Review includes a review of your 401k. To get that, call us now at 1 800 705 1232. That's 1 800 705 1232.